Well, good morning, Edgewood. It's good to see you all here this morning. Before I speak, I want to just share a couple of things with you. Today, we're going to sit at the Lord's Supper. And I want to, as I'm speaking, I want you to think about that. Uh, Think about what it means to commune with God. Uh, To have a special time where we celebrate what Christ accomplished on Calvary for you and I. To have a relationship with God. And then we'll be with Him forever. The second thing I want to tell you is we're going to go, we're going to take a look at John chapter 21. If you want to open your Bible up to that, that'd be great. Uh, If you have an iPhone and you want to look it up there. But I, I want you to be aware that we're going to have someone special read it for us this morning. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Now, let me tell you who's going to read it. Uh, Some guy by the name of Ray Pritchard. Have you ever heard of that name before? Ray Pritchard is reading through the Bible this year to leave a living legacy uh, for his grandchildren and grandchildren. Uh, You could read through the Bible with him, uh, and you could do that at Keep Believing uh, ministries.com. You could go to YouTube and look up Ray Pritchard or Keep Believing uh, Ministries. Uh, keep Believing Ministries. And I want you to know he's one of our Go partners. So I'm excited about the fact that uh, he's going to read for us. But I just want you to know that today's message is entitled What Christ Does with Failure. What Christ Does with failure. So, hey, let's go ahead and listen to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. 
You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true and There are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. This is a great chapter in the book of John. And just before I preach this message, I want to set it up with, with a poem, an anonymous poem. And it's called, And God Said If. And God Said If. If you never felt pain, then how would you know I'm a healer? If you never went through difficulty, how would you know I'm a deliverer? If you've never had a trial, how could you call yourself an overcomer? If you never felt sadness, how could you know that I'm a comforter? If you never made a mistake, how would you know that I'm a forgiver? If you were if you never were in trouble how would you know that I would come to your rescue if you never were broken how then would you know that I can make you whole if you never had a problem how would you know that I can solve them uh, if you never had any suffering then how would you know uh, what I went through if you never went through the fire then how would you become pure If I gave you all things, how would you appreciate them? If I never corrected you, how would you know that I love you? If you had all power, then how would you learn to depend on me? If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? And then think about this one. If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? Uh, You know, this is a message about failure, and it's so shocking that we still talk about it 2,000 years later. Failure is often the only test by which the real worth and quality of a man and woman can be tried. This story is about failure. This is Peter's story. There are two parts to Peter's three uh, story, his threefold denial that night uh, when Jesus was arrested and how G- Christ forgave and restored him. Uh, the first part depends wholly on Peter. The second, wholly on Jesus. Peter 
was in charge of his own failure. Christ took charge of restoring him. Behind the story lies a wonderful, liberating, and hope-filled truth. Failure is an event, not a destiny. Do you understand that? Failure is not an, it's an event, not a destiny. Uh, this is good news because what? We all fail sooner or later. And if we're honest, we all fail over and over again. As Peter's story abundantly proves, it's not our initial failure that ruins us. It's what happens next that matters. Failure doesn't mean that you've blown everything. It means that you have a hard lesson to learn. Uh, It doesn't mean that you're a permanent loser. It means that you aren't as smart as you thought you were. It doesn't mean you should give up. It means you need the Lord to show you the next step. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It means that God has a better plan. Only those who have greatly failed can truly appreciate this story. If you've only failed in small things, then uh, you'll not be deeply moved. But if you have known the shame of large failure, then listen up. This story's for you. When we've failed, especially when we fail those who love us the most, our mind becomes a swirl of emotions. Embarrassment, anger, fear, shame, and despair. Uh, We feel unworthy because we acted foolishly. Uh, When we've hurt someone deeply, we want to know if they still love us or have we blown everything. Peter never forgot what happened when he denied Christ. As long as he lived, he never forgot that terrible night. Tradition says that when he started weeping when he heard a rooster cry. Uh, Tradition says that he'd wake up every hour and pray during the hour when he denied the Lord. How does Jesus restore this fallen disciple? Jesus doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't become bitter or punish Peter. Instead, he gets to the heart of the issue. He wants Peter to grow from the experience, not shackled with it. Jesus lets Peter know that he forgives him, believes believes in him, and trusts him. He does that in five stages. Uh, The first stage, get this, he sends for Peter. When the woman arrived at the tomb early Sunday morning, an angel announced the good news and instructed them, go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter. That's pretty exciting. He says that in Mark chapter 16. What does that mean, his disciples and Peter? Peter's denial has separated him from the other disciples. And no doubt he wondered to himself many times, who am I? Am I a traitor or am I a disciple? Peter may have failed in the upper room, but Jesus sent for him. Just a few hours earlier, Peter had said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And then later he brags about his courage. He bragged that if anyone else deserted Jesus, he would never desert him. And how wrong he was because under pressure, the bold disciple became butter. Peter may have failed when Malchus, the one whose ear he lopped off, but Jesus sent for him. Uh, Peter meant well, but his futile attempt to protect Jesus accomplished nothing. And Jesus said, put your sword away. It must be this way. Peter may have failed in the courtyard, but Jesus sent for him. Are you one of those who were with Jesus? 
Jesus, I don't know him. Didn't I see you with his disciples? I, I don't know the man. Aren't you a follower of Jesus of Nazareth? And and then all of a sudden he begins to swear like only a fisherman can swear. I tell you, I don't know the man. And then in the distance, a rooster crows. Moments later, Jesus was brought out from his trial before the high priest Caiaphas in Luke chapter 22. And it says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. That's when the full impact of his sin hit him. Realizing what he had done, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. After all that, the risen Christ sends for him. He doesn't write Peter off as a permanent failure. He doesn't put him in the biggest loser category. Jesus still has plans for Peter. Plans to give him hope and a future. Plans to give him a second chance. Then we get to the second part. He met with him. Where did Peter go after he denied Jesus? The answer is we don't know for certain because the Bible doesn't say. But we can surmise that Peter did what most of us would have done when we've blown it. Uh, when we made a huge mistake, the last thing we want to do is we want to be around people, especially the ones that we hurt and love the most. Having let them down, we don't want to see them at all. And sin separates us from God and from God's people. And sin isolates us so that the devil can convince us, having made such a stupid mistake, no one wants to be around us again ever. So we spend the hours in a miserable prison of self-imposed solidarity and confinement. I think that's kind of what happened to Peter that weekend. Uh, Whenever, wherever he was, he must have felt alone. The last thing we're told is that after Jesus looked at him, Peter wept bitterly. Uh, we're not told where Peter was during the crucifixion on Friday or the burial late that afternoon. Uh, we can guess that he retreated to some lonely spot there to replay the awful moments in his mind so he can beat himself up over and over again. Why? Why did I do it? Uh, what made me think I was so much better than the others? How could I have been so stupid? Stupid. Stupid. And what does Jesus think of me now? And we find the answer to that last question in the fact that Jesus made a special appearance to Peter sometime on Easter Sunday. Uh, we don't know where and when precisely, nor do we know how long the meeting lasted. But twice in the New Testament, it mentions that the meeting took place. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, it says, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, And he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. I'm especially heartened that Jesus met with Peter before he met with the rest of the disciples. Aren't you glad of that? Uh, Jesus not only sends for Peter, he goes to meet with him before he meets with the others. Really, that's amazing grace. Uh, there will be no public humiliation. Since Peter denied Christ, things must be first settled between the two of them with wisdom and grace. Christ comes after Peter and doesn't wait for him to make the first move. Then the third aspect, he challenged him. Now we come to John 21, and it's the evening on the Sea of Galilee, not long after the resurrection. 
Peter and the six other disciples have spent the night fishing and end up catching nothing. In the morning, a man calls from the shore, telling them to put their nets on the other side of the boat and they will catch fish. They end up with so many fish they can't haul the net in because it's so full. And then they realize that the man is Jesus. Peter impulsively, like he always does, jumps in the water and begins swimming for the shore. It turns out that Peter and the other disciples caught 153 fish simply by obeying the word of Christ. If Christ was watching the disciples from the shoreline all night, why didn't he speak up sooner? Why allow these men to toil for hours in frustration? Well, hey, that's kind of the failure is a prerequisite to eventual success. If that unidentified man had spoken up sooner, they would have doubtlessly rejected his advice. What do you know? We're professional fishermen. We know where to fish. We've spent years fishing this lake. But let the night pass and the sun come up and they're at least ready to listen to the Lord. So it is with all of us. The Lord allows us to fail in our own strength so that we may learn only by his power will we succeed. You know, someone once said, success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose. The disciples learned to fail so that they could learn to depend on Christ for victories. Sometimes it takes shameful failure for all of us to wake up and see we need Christ. When we read John 21, 1 through 14, we should connect it with Luke 5, 1 through 11, where Jesus tells Peter to go out into the deep and let his nets down for a catch. Despite his doubts, Peter follows Christ's commands and ends up catching so many fish, they fill two boats. And now, and now we come full circle. The question is the same on both occasions. Peter, will you obey me even when it makes no sense? Will you obey me even when it makes no sense? It's the same question the Lord asks us every day. Will we obey even when we think we have a better way? Uh, Will we obey even when the way forward seems unclear? Uh, Will we obey when the instincts tell us to do something different? Will we obey when we have failed? On our own. The next point is that Peter is reinstated. You know, after breakfast is over, Peter and Jesus take a walk together, and this is part of the story most of us know best. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. And it's likely that the number was intentional since Peter denied the Lord three times. You probably heard before the words for love used in this passage are two different ones. Jesus uses the word agape, which is a God-given love, and Peter's going to use phileo, which is a brotherly love. And Jesus using the stronger one and Peter the weaker one. And perhaps Peter has learned not to brag and boast about anything anymore. And failure had humbled him. Now, a pastor by the name of Ray Stedman says this about the same questions three times. I also think there may be another reason why Jesus asked this question three times. It sometimes takes asking a question many times before someone hears the real question. Have you ever said to someone, how are you? And gotten a superficial answer? I'm fine. Then you follow up and say, how are you? 
And then the person responds with a little bit more of a complete answer, and they might say, well, my family's struggling, or I'm struggling. And then one more time, you say, how are you? And then only then do they seem to get to the answer. We get to the answer of the real question. Then the person kind of confesses that they're lonely, they're frightened, or they're sick. And we might have to tell somebody we love them several times before we, they believe us. And I think Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter heard the question. We need to make sure that we hear it too. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Before Peter denied Jesus, he inferred in the upper room he loved Jesus much more than the others. All men will forsake you, Lord, but I will lay my life down for you in Matthew chapter 26. So Jesus asks, do you truly love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon Peter of John, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Peter is hurt. Jesus asks him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Uh, Peter and Jesus had this conversation around a charcoal fire. Think about that. The particular Greek word for charcoal fire is used only in one other place in the New Testament. John 18, it refers to the charcoal fire in the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus. By one fire, he says, I don't know him. By another fire, he says, Lord, you know I love you. By one charcoal fire, he denies Christ. By one charcoal fire, he's restored by Christ. You know, several questions come to mind as we read this passage. Why did Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? The answer is because Peter denied him three times. Uh, Why did he do it publicly? Because Peter denied him publicly and the other disciples needed to hear Peter openly declare his love for Christ. Without hearing these words, the doubts could linger forever. The man who had been so boastful, so sure of himself, so confident of his own courage, is now thoroughly humbled. Jesus' first question, do you love me more than these? It was a subtle reminder of his previous boast of more loyal than other disciples. In his reply, Peter declares his love for Christ, but he refuses to compare himself with anyone else. As painful as this was, it was absolutely necessary. See, Jesus is cleansing the wound so that it might properly heal. He's getting rid of Peter's guilt and shame by dealing with it openly. Uh, Jesus is going to restore this man publicly, humiliating as it would be, so that the others would also know that everything's okay between Jesus and Peter. Consider what Christ doesn't do. He doesn't try to make Peter feel guilty. He doesn't humiliate him publicly. He doesn't ask him, are you sorry for what you did? 
He doesn't make him promise to do better. He just asks him one question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Once we're hurt, once we've hurt someone we love, it's hard to look them in the face. It's still harder to ask the question about true commitment. How could you have done that? What were you thinking? Do you even love me? And by that question, the question must be asked and the answer must be given. And they must repeat if the truth is to be fully told. Peter needed to see the enormity of his sin. He needed to hear Jesus ask these searching questions. Only then could he grasp the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness. Only then could he truly be restored. And without the pain, he would not get better. Years ago, someone once said this, the truth will set you free, but it will hurt you first. And often we don't get better because we don't want to face the hard truth about what we've said and done. But until we face the truth about ourselves, we can never be free. Here are three qualifications for those who would serve the Lord. One is love. Two is love. Three is love. First we love then we serve. First we love, then we speak. First we love, then we lead. When Christ asks the question a third time, Peter's heart is grieved. He blurts out, Lord, you know all things. And with those words, Peter renounced all self-confidence. On that fateful night in the upper room, he thought he knew himself, but he didn't. Now he's not so sure. He doesn't even trust his own heart. Instead, he trusts in the Lord who knows all things. And this is a mighty step forward in the Christian growth. It's a great advance to come to a place where you can say with conviction, my trust is in the Lord alone. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom and hit hard before we can say those words. Did it work? Did the painful surgery produce a desired healing? Yes, Peter never denied Christ again. And just a few days later, think about this. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to those who had crucified Christ. And 3,000 came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, according to Acts chapter 2. The old Peter was gone, and a new man was born when Jesus restored uh, the fallen disciple. What was the first thing Jesus ever said to Peter? Follow me. What's the last thing Jesus ever said to Peter? Follow me. The beginning and the end of the Christian life boils down to two words. Follow me. So what happens here at the end? You know, if we take a look at verse 20, Peter turns and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He's the guy that wrote all this stuff down, John. And one who leaned back against his, uh, him during the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And then when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? Peter kind of lost his focus, kind of like what he did every once in a while, like when he was walking on the water with Jesus. 
Same thing here. He loses focus, sees John, and he just has to know what's going to happen to him. And you know what Jesus says to him? What's that to you? Really, he's saying, it's none of your beeswax. Spurgeon points out that Peter's mind was distracted from the command to follow the Savior by focusing on someone else, what they were doing. And Spurgeon says, Dear friends, do not let our thoughts be diverted at this time, but let us come to the principal point and keep to it. And that point is this, the main business of our life is to follow Jesus. When we compare what God has for us to do with what he has called others to do, that can lead to comparison. Comparison leads to envy, envy to jealousy, and those lead to frustration and bitterness. Hey, the best advice we could get is just follow Jesus. You know, if you want to compare Peter and John, when Jesus appeared on the shore, John, Peter jumped in the water. John remained on board. When Jesus asked for a response, Peter was the first to speak, and John was thoughtful and quiet. When Jesus was arrested, Peter cut someone's ear off, and John didn't. He ran away. Both men served Jesus in an equally valuable way. Uh, You know, we are different with different gifts, different personalities, different callings. The main business of our lives ought to be to follow Jesus. Jesus. All of Peter's mistakes came because he took his eyes off of Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we'll end up in the right place. If we follow Jesus, we won't need to play the comparison game. If we follow Jesus, the road won't be easy. If we follow Jesus, we'll end up where Jesus ended up at the cross. But if we follow Jesus, we will have everything we need when we need it. And when we finally get to heaven, we'll be glad we spent our time on earth following Jesus. Finally, Jesus re-enlists Peter. Although he failed in the past, in the end, he will glorify God in his death. In the upper room, Peter had some rash boasting that he was willing to follow Jesus to prison and to death. And it's if Jesus is telling him, you are right about that, more right than you know. And someday you will have the chance to keep your promise. And I know that in that day you will not fail. And early historians tell us that Peter lived and died faithfully to Jesus to the very end. Early church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified the same way that our Lord was. It's remarkable that Jesus skips the rest of Peter's life and concentrates only on how he will die. So what's that for us? Uh, What do we want to think about? So we come to kind of the end of this message, and what does Christ do with failure? He redeems it. God is able to, now Lutzer said this, God is able to forget our sins. Why can't we? He throws them, he throws our sins into the depths of the sea and puts a sign on the shore which reads, no fishing, no fishing. Peter remains a figure of surpassing interest to us. We can't get enough of him. We know him well because when we get up every morning and look in the mirror, many of us say, hey, Peter, how's it going? We know that. 
Uh, we love Peter because we can see ourselves in his story. In fact, his story is our story. And for all of us, the process of Christian growth is long and painful with many ups and downs. And Peter the rock often seemed not very rock-like. It took repeated failures to produce rock-solid character in him. But Jesus never gave up on his man. Here's the final irony. From beginning to end, Jesus believed in Peter more than Peter believed in himself. So it is with all of us. If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? The real hero of Peter's story isn't Peter. It's Jesus. And that's why in John 21 in the Bible, so that all of us Peter types would know that when we fail again and again, by God's grace, we can keep getting back up. What mercy. What grace. And if he did it for Peter, he can do it for us. And for you. Can do it for me. Perhaps you've heard it said, over the gate of heaven there's a sign that reads for sinners only. Now that's only a legend, okay? That's not in the Bible, all right? For sinners only. And then could you imagine that on the other side there's a sign that says, by grace alone, and that doesn't say that's in the Bible either, okay? So think about it. When you walk through the, to the gate, it says for sinners only. On the other side, by grace alone. And finally, there's this long-standing legend that Peter will meet us at the gate of heaven. Have you heard that? That's not true, okay? It's not in the Bible. I just want you to know that. Well, there's no Bible proof, biblical proof for that. Wouldn't it be appropriate for me, Peter to, to be there? Because he understood more than any others what those words really meant. 